Right, we are working through uh, the early chapters of the book of Acts. We stopped last week and, and obviously talked more broadly about the church and where we're going. But we've been, if you remember, for the last few weeks on a bit of a journey through Acts, looking at what we've been calling the Jesus movement, which uh, you could just call the church. That's basically what we're talking about. But I'm just trying to get behind that label a little bit and just get rid of some of the connotations that that word has and give a fresh look at this movement that started in Jerusalem back in the first century after Jesus had ascended. And if you remember, we began by looking just before this whole movement had blown open and Jesus commissioned his disciples and said, you will be, remember what he said, you'll be my what? Witnesses. Good, you're with me. Excellent. Witnesses. And so we talked about witnessing for Christ, not just standing on a street corner and telling people how to be saved, but speaking and serving people with the love and the good news about Jesus. And then we fast forwarded a little bit to a couple of chapters after the church has begun. And we looked at that snapshot of early Christian community and that new family bond that had been formed around the person of Jesus, uh, like a new family that had, that had taken shape and people were really looking out for each other, really loving each other, even though they had so little in common in some ways, they had so much in common in the other ways. And so we looked in application at us being a friendly and welcoming church, the need to be a connecting church, the need to be a caring church, and I know that you've all been taking the initiative to be really, really friendly. I know after this service finishes, you're going to go and shake hands with people you don't know and do all that stuff that good people do. So there you go. I know, I know you've been absorbing this. That's wonderful. And so that was the connecting idea behind the church. And we're going to fast forward a little bit more today. And uh, we haven't been able to go systematically through uh, each chapter of Acts. Maybe one day we'll do that. But uh, for now, I want to just jump ahead a little bit more because as the story goes on, in Jerusalem with these people that were now following Jesus, uh, it wasn't long before this new movement began to attract a lot of hostility towards itself uh, because from, from people that were steeped in the traditions and the laws of the Jewish culture, people that were brought up in Judaism, it was pretty threatening. And, and it continues to be in a lot of ways. Uh, Christianity, the idea that we're following Jesus and that we are taking this uh, manual laborer from a backwater village in Nazareth as our Lord and King, it, sound, it sounds kind of stupid to a lot of people. It sounds kind of stupid to me when I say it like that, actually. But uh, that, this is the, that's what it was sounding like on the street in Jerusalem. That This isn't a king. This isn't someone who is well-known. He doesn't come from one of the big cities. He hardly fits the criteria for what the Messiah should be. He's just he's this guy. He's just the peasant. And worse than that, he got crucified on a cross, which categorically means he can't be the Messiah. What are you doing following him? And yet, these Christ followers... We're claiming that God had raised this Jesus from the dead and in so doing had made him Lord and Christ and brought all things in heaven on earth under submission to him. Not that this was all visible to the human eye right now, but this is what God was at work doing. This is what he was doing on the cross and this is what he's doing now. So because of this, the Jewish authorities decided they were going to make a public spectacle of the Christian movement and they ended up martyring, well, executing uh, the first Christian martyr, Stephen. In Jerusalem. And when that happened, a massive wave of persecution broke out against the church, and the followers of Jesus were scattered out of Jerusalem. It was so intense that many of them, except the apostles, the direct associates who walked with Jesus, uh, most people left town. And they made their way into a lot of the other regions. And even though, from the Romans' perspective, this was getting rid of these people from Jerusalem, as history bears it out, what actually happened was good for the gospel because it meant it started to spread. And these Christ followers, far from shutting down, started taking it 
this message about Jesus wherever they went. And this is where we're going to pick up today in Acts chapter 11. So turn over there if you have a Bible. The words will be on the screen, but it is helpful to follow along if you've got a copy of the Bible in front of you. And we'll pick it up in uh, verse 19 of Acts chapter 11. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So now, some of these Jesus people have uh, traveled out of Jerusalem. They've wandered far from home up into the Roman province, as it was then, of Syria. And there is a city there called Antioch. It's nothing like Jerusalem. This was a Greek city. It was a major cosmopolitan city, commercial hub in the Roman Empire. So, you know, you're not in Kansas anymore now, Dorothy. This is big time. It's the, you're in the middle of the civilized world. And now the message is going out, not just to Jewish people where it started, but also to non-Jews, which Luke simply calls Greeks. That's basically everyone that's not a Jew gets lumped in that category. They're a Greek. And so the gospel's blowing wide open now. And most of us, unless you are Jewish in this room, we are the beneficiaries of this movement to the Greek world, to the non-Jew world. We inherit that legacy. This is quite special that Luke bothers to mention that. So the gospel's now, the, the work is happening in Antioch. Verse 22, news of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, back down south. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas was one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And Saul, the other name for Saul is Paul. Yeah, this was, Saul was his old name before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And now, then he became Paul. And when, he, when Barnabas found him, that's, that's Saul, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And here's the sentence I want to land on this morning. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. It's amazing that Luke mentions that. It's almost like a little sidelight, isn't it? There's a little parentheses there. But that's an incredible statement. When you think of all the people through history that have claimed the name Christian, and those of us that would claim that name today, the millions of people throughout the world, throughout all generations, that have called themselves Christ followers or Christians, and here's where that started, right here. And interestingly, it didn't start, as far as we can tell, with the church calling themselves Christians. It started as a title that people gave to followers of Jesus that weren't followers of Jesus themselves. And you can imagine how this probably happened on the streets of Antioch, people walking around and, and saying, well, who, what, what is this crazy bunch of people over here that keep talking about Jesus, that keep talking about this Christos, Christ? And, and someone else would say, well, they're, they're, they're the Christ people. That's basically who they are. They're the Jesus people. They just keep talking about Jesus and that's their master and that's who they're following and they stand up in the colonnades and they preach to whoever's going to listen and try to convince them to start following this Christos themselves. They're, they're the Christianoi, the Christians. And literally that just means Christ ones, the Christ people. That's where it came from. And what's fascinating to me is when you look at this, this label of Christianoi, it was given, it's not just handed out randomly to anybody. It's given to a specific group of people, a group of people that were called 
disciples. It doesn't just say that that was given to converts or believers or people that watched from a distance or associates of Jesus. This label of Christianos, Christianoi, was given to those who were disciples. And so it's quite important that we try and wrap our minds around what it means then to be a disciple. And the Greek word there is mathatos, or mathatai, disciples of Jesus. We've probably all got connotations in our mind of what that means, what a disciple is, what, what a disciple does. It's actually a very Jewish word. Even though we're in Antioch and this is a Greek city, the way Luke uses this word, it's got a very Jewish heritage. For Jewish boys growing up, because boys were the only uh, people that were educated in those days, they were the only ones that went through school. And Jewish boys would go through religious education and they would learn at a very young age the books of the Bible. They'd learn the first five, particularly. And then at a certain age, at about 12 years old, a lot of them would drop out of school and they would pick up uh, the family trade, and they'd become uh, some sort of manual labourer or, or just work on a career. And then a few of them would carry on and do further education. And at that stage, the focus broadened out. It wasn't just the first five books of the Bible. It was the entire Old Testament. And some of these Jewish boys, by the time they got to the end of their teenage years, had memorised Genesis right through to Malachi, a huge chunk of Scripture. At that stage, many of them would then leave, and, and they'd go on, be leaders in their communities, in their homes, and so on. They'd get, they'd get workplace jobs. And there was a few of these boys who had come right through the religious education system who were really the cream of the crop. And rather than just going and getting any old job, they decided that they would go and find in their city or in another Jewish city a rabbi. And a rabbi just means teacher. Rabbis were the most esteemed and revered people in Jewish society. They were the ones who understood more than anybody what the scriptures said. They would interpret the scriptures for others and they would model to everyone else, to the entire community, to the people of Israel, what a life patterned after the law truly looked like. And so if you wanted to know what the law said and, and how it worked, you would look to the rabbi and you would ask the rabbi and you would observe the conduct of the rabbi. And each rabbi would gather around himself a little cluster of followers, a cluster of would-be rabbis, little apprentices. And these followers were called disciples. These were the mathatai of whatever rabbi they happened to be following. And if you were a disciple of the rabbi, you would try and get as close to this rabbi as you possibly could. You would follow his every step. You would eat with him. You would sleep next to him. You would be observing all the time what he was doing. You would spend hours every day listening while the rabbi taught. You would ask a lot of questions. You'd be firing questions at the rabbi all the time because you'd want to understand how he understood the Torah how he understood the law. What does this mean? What do you think about this verse? Because you would be like an apprentice to the rabbi and you'd be trying to understand his ways and his life and his interpretation so eventually you could take uh, his role and you could be a rabbi perhaps yourself. And the goal of all this was that you would become like the rabbi. One commentator talks about a saying that was popular in the first century. May you be covered with the dust of the rabbi. And literally the idea is that you'd be following so close behind your rabbi during the day as he walked down the dusty streets of the town, that his, the dust from his sandals would just spray up all over you. And at the end of the day, you'd be covered in the dust of your rabbi because that's how close you wanted to get to him. You wanted to get inside his head. You wanted to understand his life. You wanted to pattern your entire existence after him. And this is how it was with the followers of Jesus. This is why that word, mathatai, is given to the followers of Christ because they fit this bill. And Jesus fit the description of a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was the master, and they would follow him. They tried to gain proximity to him. They wanted to understand him. They spent time with him. 
And interestingly, even after Jesus ascends to heaven, you notice that Luke doesn't drop the term disciple. So right through the book of Acts, you still find the followers of Jesus being referred to as the Mathatai, as a disciples, and not just the people that actually walked and talked with Jesus, the original apostles, but all those who became followers of Jesus, all those who claimed his name and became part of this Jesus movement. They're all given this title, Mathatai. Now, what does that tell you about what it means to be a part of the Jesus movement? What does that tell you about what it means to be associated with Jesus, to be a Mathatai of Rabbi Jesus? What does it tell you that this title, Christianoi, Christian, was given specifically to those who were the Mathatai? Not to casual observers, not just to, to, to passive spectators, but to the disciples. It was they who received from others this title of Christian, the Christ followers, because they were the Mathatai, they were the disciples. See, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, being part of the Jesus movement and this community of faith, it is about far more than just believing in Jesus. You know, it's more than just believing that Jesus died on a cross for your sins to save you and one day you're going to go to heaven when you die. And you all rattle that line off and it becomes so cliche and there's something beyond that that it means to follow Jesus. It means to give your whole life in the service of Jesus. It means to center your whole existence on Him now, to bring all of your relationships, to bring all of your priorities, to bring your ambitions, goals and dreams, everything about you, your interests and hobbies, your personality, everything you are now comes in submission and comes in the service of Rabbi Jesus. And it becomes, your life becomes about patterning yourself after the great rabbi becoming like the rabbi, being covered in the dust of Rabbi Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. You're very quiet. <laughs> Just taking that in. And there's a huge um, roadblock that you come to here. Take a deep breath. There's a lot of people, I think, when we start talking about this stuff, being a disciple, following Jesus, how important it is that we are really serving Him, we're really seeking to follow after Him. A lot of people think this, maybe you're thinking this now, I need to go out and act differently. I need to behave differently if I'm going to follow Jesus. I need to do different stuff. And so you run out after the service and you buy your WWJD bracelet. Hey, what would Jesus do? You know those ones? You know, the problem with those bracelets is I don't know whether Jesus himself wore a bracelet. So the whole thing, I think, logically self-implodes at that point. But anyway, that's, that's another theological issue. But you buy your WWJD bracelet and you walk around thinking, right, what would Jesus do? And, 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 and with good intentions, probably, you, you think, well, I'm going to be really forgiving. I'm going to forgive everybody. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be pure. And I'm not going to swear or, or drink or I'm going to go to church a whole lot. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to hang around Christians all the time, be really churchy. And I'm just going to be this great Jesus follower. And there is a name that we give to these people who do that. There's, there's a name that the New Zealand counsellor Dave Riddell gives to this group of people. Depressed. <laughs> because these are seriously the most likely people to suffer from depression. Because they try on the foundation of their own sheer willpower and self-discipline and effort to go and live a good life, change their behavior, and it just doesn't work. And you know this experience. After a while, you know, you get all fired up and you go out there and you try and do it, and what happens? You crash and burn. 
and you end up in a pile on the floor and you just feel stupid and frustrated and depressed and sorry for yourself. And it takes you a long time to get out of that and then you try again and then you fall on the floor again. And that's the life that a lot of people live. And they're trapped in guilt and obligation and just depression, seriously because they can't get it together. You have to realize that being a disciple of Jesus is not just about behavior. We're so fond of talking about behavior in churches. And it is important, and we'll get to that, but it doesn't start there. And that's not the whole package. We don't want to be behaviorists, that we just think if you change your actions, everything else is going to be okay. It's not the case. You think about planting a fruit tree. I've never planted a fruit tree, but here's a good metaphor for you. Trying to work on just behavior and change your actions and change habits in your life without first addressing what's going on on the inside of you is like trying to plant a fruit tree and expecting it to bear great and healthy fruit when it's planted in rocky soil. It's planted in unhealthy and unfertile soil. And I think there's a lot of Christians today who are expecting great things and wondering why they're not living the victorious and abundant Christian life and they're trees planted in dead soil because they are not healthy on the inside. Discipleship being a disciple of Rabbi Jesus, it begins in our minds. You remember what Paul said in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He didn't say be transformed by the renewing of your behavior. He said be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And if we desire to follow Jesus, it begins by having a healthy mind. The reality is for a lot of us, even though we know that we are saved by the grace of God, even though we know in an intellectual level that God loves us and that we are going to heaven when we die. At a much deeper level in our lives, deep within the recesses of our hearts and sometimes even in our subconscious, we are telling ourselves things about God that are misbeliefs. We're telling ourselves things about ourselves, about other people that are fundamentally tr uh, untrue. And those things are manifesting themselves in our behavior even though we don't realize it. Some of you at a deep level are telling yourselves that you're fundamentally unloved by God. That he doesn't honestly love you. And that even though you might be able to trot out the pat answers and the Sunday school answers, at a deep level you don't honestly believe that God loves you. Some of you believe at a deep level that you don't have any value unless you're approved by other people. Unless you're accepted by them and agreed with by them and endorsed by them on every point. That you don't have any self-worth if that's not the case. Some of you believe at a deep level that you're not truly forgiven. And again, even though we can sit around and sing the songs and say the words and quote the Bible verses, there's something going on in your heart that tells you you're not truly forgiven. Maybe you're partially forgiven, but it depends in large measure on what you do. And your standing with God is somehow determined by how good you are, how rightly you live, how nice you are to other people and all of that stuff. Some of you believe that God's fundamental posture towards you is anger or at least annoyance. You feel like you're just a mozzie in God's ear sometimes. Just you know, he's just trying to bat you away with his hand. You're just frustrating him. You're an irritation to him. And, and some of us live with those. Now, how is that going to manifest itself in your life? Because honestly, we can, we can talk about reading the Bible and living good lives and forgiving other people. When that's going on, it's a waste of time. When those lies are being told to yourself deep in your own heart, you, you can forget about the rest of it because it's just not going to happen. Because at a fundamental level, you've got misbeliefs about God. And what we need to begin by doing is identifying what those misbeliefs are through some times of quiet self-reflection and prayer, and then mounting a full-scale attack 
on those misbeliefs with the truth of Scripture and launching an all seriously an all-out assault on those things that you are believing at a deep level right now that are untrue, taking to them with a sledgehammer, shouting yourself down if you have to, arguing yourself against yourself if you have to in order to start reprogramming the way you think about God. So that if you believe deeply that you are not loved and valued unless you're accepted by other people, you need to spend time drinking in the promises of Scripture where God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've called you with loving kindness. His grace and mercy is as, as far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are from the earth. Now you can just, again, roll that out, but to spend time truly saying it to yourself, drinking it in, praying that God would help you internalize those truths in a new and a deep way. For those of you that feel abandoned by God and unloved by Him and, and separated from Him, it's meditating on those passages in Romans 8 where we're told that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That if God is for you, who can be against you? That you are a loved and precious child of His. That you are valued in His eyes. And your value doesn't come from what other people may or may not say to you, think of you, or talk about you. It comes from what God did on the cross for you. You, and the way in which his love for you was demonstrated on Calvary with the, with the cross and the empty tomb. That's your value. That's your self-worth. That's the first place to look in answer to the question, how much value do I really have? How loved am I? How forgiven am I? You look to the cross. That's how loved you are. That God would give his only son up for you. That's what we need to start doing. I know this can still, it takes such a long time. I'm on this journey. I really am. I'm, I'm you know, trying to reprogram my own mind with the truth of Scripture to help me correct some deep misbeliefs that I have about God and others and myself. This is something that we need to start doing. But only then does the soil start to become fertile and our mind becomes renewed. It's a lifetime journey, but as it is renewed, then the soil is fertile for a relationship with God. And this is, I see this being like the tree trunk, this relationship that we have with Jesus, a relationship that we have with God. And again, this is a point at which so many Christians stumble and fall because we don't relate deeply to God. We go about trying to change outward actions, but we're not in any kind of deep communion and deep fellowship with God. Ask yourself right now, where are you in relation to God right now? Where's God in, in proximity to you? How close is your heart to His this morning? Easy to come along, easy to sing the songs, easy to listen to a sermon, go home again, but where are you in relation to God right now? And for many of us, the answer is there's a big chasm. I don't know how it got this way, but I'm just feeling separated from Him. I, I can't sense His presence. Not that it's all about emotions, but there's just no sense of, of, his, of His presence, and I don't think that I'm very near to Him at all. This is where a lot of people live. And there is no point going out and just trying to work on behavior until we address that rich and deep communion that we have with God. And that comes through drawing near to Him. It comes through abiding with Him. It doesn't come in a hurry. It doesn't come through just flipping through a couple of Bible verses as you run out the door to work in the morning. It comes through taking time and carving out time in your schedule to really sit before Him and be still and center yourself on the presence of the risen Christ with you. And to allow yourself to know and to understand God's presence in your life. It comes through going through those motions of, not that it's going through the motions, but going through the process of worshipping Him 
and going through the process of confession, bringing to him those things in our life that are not where they're supposed to be, and meditating again on his word, drinking in his forgiveness, experiencing that healing balm of the Holy Spirit that some of you even now need to experience today because you're not where you need to be with God. You've dried up. And today needs to be a time of refreshing for you to come back to God and say, I'm not where I am. With, I need, need to be with you, God. I need to draw near again. I need to return. I need to come home. And to allow ourselves to know the assurance that every time we come back to him, he is that father whose arms are open wide and he brings us back. Not with a tut-tut, not with a wag of his finger and I told you so, but with a loving embrace. He is as ready to take you back today as he'll ever be. It's only you that's preventing that from happening. As we draw near to God, as we develop that rich communion and learn what it is to walk with God daily, minute by minute, moment by moment, then we're in a place where we can look at behavior. Now, this is why I have taken so much time to build up to this, because I know you're going to email me after the sermon and say, you're just... It's all about behavior, and, and, and you know, this, this is just, that's what being a disciple is. But friends, what I've tried to show you is it, it begins by a renewal of the mind, and it's manifested in a growing and deepening relating to Christ and to God. It comes out of relationship with Him. And the outworking of that in the life of a disciple is a changed character. It is changed behavior. And I'm not here to tell you that behavior isn't important, because it is. And the writers of the New Testament are really clear on this. There's many, many times you can go to in Scripture and you see those admonitions to change the way we act, to change the way we live. But they're not in a vacuum. They don't just happen. And there is no point just working on behavior in isolation from this other stuff. Please don't go out there and just try to live a godly and righteous life if you are not also trying to relate deeply to God and allow Him to renew your mind. But as you're doing that, what does the life then of a disciple look like? Someone who's really serious about following the rabbi, Jesus, about emulating his conduct. What, what would that look like? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things we could say about this, but it would look like surely someone who's beginning to re relate differently to other people, someone who's giving others more time, someone who is learning to be gracious and gentle with other people less and less exasperated with them and frustrated and stressed out by people who we don't like or who don't like us, but learning to be gentle, learning to be humble, learning to love them, learning to see people as God sees us and relate to them as he relates to us with patience and with long-suffering and with a gentle word rather than a harsh word. It means becoming more aware of how what I'm doing impacts on other people, how what I want to do on that day trip or that holiday is going to influence the rest of the group around me and what they might want to do, and not just have tunnel vision, that this is my agenda and what I want to do, and that, that's as far as it goes, but I start to put myself in the shoes of other people, see this thing from their perspective, get around their side of the table. I become increasingly aware of the needs and interests of other people. I start to practice. I'm not talking about me personally. I'm really on the, on the journey with this as much as anyone else, but the life of a fully devoted disciple becomes increasingly aware of the needs and the interests of someone else. They're more aware of when someone's hurting, and needy, and more willing to go, more willing to sacrifice, and to give up for them. They're becoming a better employee, more diligent. They're becoming a more gracious employer, more compassionate and benevolent. They're becoming a better neighbor. They're becoming gradually a better father, or mother, or son, 
daughter, grandparent, brother and sister. In every relationship, in every sphere of life, we are growing. And as you look back over your life, even the past year, I don't think you can measure this in days and weeks. I think it's only in years. So think back to this time last year. How have you, if you have at all, grown in some of these areas? Can you see progress? Can you see forward momentum? Can you see growth? Because the life of the disciple is a life of growth. And too often people have a great running start at the Christian faith, but after a while they stall out and they just stop growing and they get comfortable and culture kicks in and they just become culturally accommodated Christians. And the true disciple whose mind is renewed and whose faith is strong is someone who's taking their cue, not from the world, but from the scriptures. They're not allowing pop culture to dictate to them how to live and what to do. Their standards of ethics and morality are drawn from the scriptures themselves. So they're seeking to be and live and act with integrity in their finances. They're seeking to be responsible in their relationships. I'll give you one example of how sometimes uh, we, we fall down in this area. Let's just be controversial for a minute, shall we? What about the standard of modesty for Christian women? Oh, I can't believe he's going there. <laughs> you know, I mean, let, now you're looking at the ground. I don't know where the Lord's happening here. I mean, we're all about that until you get to the beach. Christian women, happy to uphold the principle of modesty. That's fantastic. Until we go to the beach, until we go to the pools, and then the string bikini comes out. Did he just say string bikini? <laughs> I don't think you can say that in church. <laughs> Welcome to Shore Community Christian Church, where we can talk about these things as loving brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't, isn't it true, though? Could that be an example of how we've allowed a relativized culture to tell us what's okay, rather than going first to the standard of God's Word? Now, sure, it doesn't mention string bikinis in God's Word. It doesn't mention specific items of clothing that you may or may not wear. But how have we thought through that principle and tried to apply it? Could it be that there are some double standards going on and that we've allowed ourselves to be told what's okay, not from God's Word, but from the culture around us? It takes a returning to Scripture. It takes that attitude of silence and prayer, and we really seek God's will and seek to block out the many voices around us and, and ask through the word of God and through the power of the Spirit, how, Lord, would you have me live in purity and in holiness? What does it mean to be godly before you? What does it mean, as First Peter says, to live such good lives among the unbelievers that they'd see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven? How close is your life to that? I know some of you are hearing this, and right now you're saying this is legalism, this is moralism, this is behaviorism. I can't believe you are rolling this out in church. That is why I spent 25 minutes of this sermon getting to this point. So please don't send me those emails, or I may have to delete them if you do. But this is, this, this is the reality. It does work itself out through behavior, and I won't apologize for defending standards of godliness and righteousness, that we would be those who bear fruit in keeping with righteousness, that our lives would look different. How do our lives look different? Sometimes we just blend in, look so much like the rest of the world. We've got nothing to offer them. We've got nothing to say to them because we're just the same as them. There is a time and a place for Christians to be distinguished by the character and the godliness of their lives. And friends, I, look, I put my hand up and say to you that I fail in all these areas. I'm not standing up here as someone who's got it all figured out. I am a pilgrim on the journey. But that doesn't mean that it's not right and true. 
And it doesn't mean that it's not grounded in God's word. This need to be a disciple. And our goal as a church is to be a discipling community because it's not something, this process of becoming a disciple is not something that just happens in isolation. It happens best as you have other brothers and sisters around you, encouraging you, spurring you on, calling you to account, leading you back to the scriptures. I wish I could spend more time talking about the authority of the scriptures in the life of the disciple. That's another key component. And let me just say one thing on that, that in a couple of weeks' time, when this series ends, we're starting a series in the Gospel of Mark. And just as we worked through Hebrews last year, most of this year we're going to be spending working through the Gospel of Mark. And so I want to encourage you, here is one thing you could do to really begin immersing yourself in the Word of God. We have a reading plan for Mark. It's up here somewhere. I'll get it to you afterwards at the front. Uh, Just to read through the Gospel of Mark a couple of times before we get to that point so that you come to that series ready. And we're going to spend this year looking at this Rabbi Jesus. How did he live? What was his relationship with the Father? That we might emulate him, that we might know him more and understand him more and see his plan for our lives. So let me just say that to prepare you for that series that's coming. And you can think about how you could prepare yourself in a few weeks' time. We'll start that after Easter. The Word of God just so central in the life of of a disciple. We're not going to make any progress in godliness unless we are grounded in the Word of God. And it comes through community. It comes through the support of others. That's why we have life groups. It's a place where you can be open with others about these struggles and have others encourage you on the journey. That's why we encourage people to form little twos, threes, and fours of accountability and discipleship pairs. You've got a flyer in your bulletin today about that. Not encourage you, maybe make this year a priority where you will get into a relationship with maybe one other person, two other people, three other people, and you'll have coffee with them and have breakfast or whatever with them with some regularity and just get into each other's lives. Start asking each other the hard questions. Start chewing some of this stuff over that we've been talking about today and challenging one another to that next level. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. That as we we rub against each other in that sense and, and, and do life together, then we're able to spur each other on rather than just being spiritual islands. And as we grow together into a discipling community, we become like apprentices of Jesus. As a church, we become apprentices, not just associates of Jesus. We become disciples, not just followers, not not just observers rather, not just passive bystanders. We become those whose lives are dedicated to growing, to deepening, to working out these habits of righteousness and godliness in our lives. That we might stand before God on that day of judgment and have him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Not just because you lived a good life, but because you sought to know me deeply, renew your mind and practice those habits of godliness. That's what it means, friends, to be Christianos. That is what it means to be among those who are the Christianoi, the Christians, the Christ followers. They are disciples of the rabbi. Let's pray. Father, I know that we've been talking about some heavy stuff this morning. And I know that even in what I've said, these things can be misconstrued and and so on. I just ask, Lord, that your spirit would come and, and truly just press on our hearts your word as we each need to hear it. Father, prevent us from falling into legalism and convincing ourselves that it's all about our actions. We desire to renew our minds. And Lord, more than anything this morning, we say to you that we want to know you, Lord. We want to know you, Jesus, deeply and richly. We want to walk with you. We want all these, this this character change to come out of a deep 
and vital relationship that we have with you. And, and Lord, if that flame has died down for some of us, I pray you'd renew it and show us how we can work with you in renewing and fanning back into flame that passion, that, that love, that relationship with you that just once burned so bright and maybe is now just a flicker. God, I pray for any of my brothers and sisters here this morning that are really struggling in, in that area of just feeling so disconnected and lost and, and apart from you. God, I ask for a restoring of their relationship with you this morning. I ask for reconnection, that you would bring them back to yourself, that you would reassure them, even now, Father, as I'm speaking, that you would reassure them of your love, your acceptance, your unconditional grace demonstrated on the cross. Lord, let that just sink into our bones and let that be what comes out in our lives, an overflow of grace. We long for that, Lord. Father, do that work of discipleship among us. Make us a discipling community. Make us a discipling church. We pray these things in Jesus' name.